We're continuing this morning going through the book of James, which we started last week. So boys and girls, make sure you have your children's bulletin here. Get your own translation in there and a place you can ask us questions should you have them. Everybody else, we're going to be in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 25 this morning. So you can feel free there to fire up your smartphone apps or turn there in your uh, bulletin or use your scriptures, however you want to. And get God's word in front of us uh, this morning. Before we go to his word, let's go together to him in prayer. Oh, Father God, we do thank you and uh, praise you that you have condescended to give us speech, Lord, to speak to us, that we might know your truth, that we might know your gospel. Lord, we pray that as we come to your word this morning, that you would open it up to us, open us up to it, Lord. Give us a more profound understanding of your gospel. Help us to see how amazing your grace truly is. Oh, we ask you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, is Christianity, is it a set of beliefs? Or is it a different way to do life? Is it a whole new way of being human, is how some people like to put it? Or is it just a set of principles that we believe in? Is Christianity, is it a radical encounter with actual, ultimate reality found in Jesus Christ? And because of this encounter, you'll, you'll never be the same again. Or is it just something you do a couple times a month? Because it gives you a good, peaceful feeling. You see, James is all about a Christianity that fundamentally changes you. James wants us to see that, that the gospel is a whole set of resources for life in this world. But often we have to be weaned off of the way that we used to live. And God does that weaning of His people often through trials. That's what we saw last week. God sends trials, James said, to build steadfastness in us. To get us to turn back to Him for the resources for life. These resources He offers by grace in the Gospel. That's why James opens his book with this exhortation, see trials as joy, and if you don't, ask for wisdom to do so. Now, such a view of trials, such a view of God's active sovereignty in our life, raises some questions. And James addresses those questions now in verses 13 through 25. So if you would, would you turn to God's Word? Let's look at James chapter 1. Verses 13 through 25. This is God's word. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth 
that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is God's word. So I want to just jump right in and kind of give you our theme here for what we're going to be doing today, where we're going to try to go with it. There's a lot here, so uh, maybe you can write this down, boys and girls, there's a place you can write that down. And at lunch today, when you're talking about church, hopefully, and talking about the sermon, probably, you can see, did we actually do this? Here's where we're going to go today. Since God desires that we be His, He gave us the gospel to take to others. See, we're going to see that God put the gospel in us, in spite of us, actually, that others might know the gospel through us. So let's jump in that together and see the gospel in spite of us where he starts out. I love how he starts out in verse 13, having outlined how trials can be your good and ask for wisdom. Trials are from God to make you better. So he asks a very logical question, a very, a very true question that those of us who've been through intense trials have asked. Is it, if God sends trials on purpose, if he is in control, is God out to get me? And James says right away, no, don't doubt God's goodness in your trials. Instead, as he told us to do back in verses 1 through 12, ask for wisdom. Learn to have joy in trials because they build perseverance in us. And so to help us see that, James uses this great fishing metaphor in verses 14 to show how we actually, not God, we turn trials into temptations. He says, our own desires, our own lusts, those things lure and entice us like a fisherman with a bait and a hook casting it just in the right spot and slowly working it to coax that fish out of that big hole there and we're, look, come eat this. That's exactly what desire does to us. That's the image he's using here. He says, once that desire hooks us, it then gives birth to sin and sin gives birth to death. See, what James is doing here, and I love how the New Testament does this over and over again to show us how to speak to our culture. James is actually taking a teaching technique that was very common in the Hellenistic world, in the ancient Roman culture, of, and, he's, and he's then using it to give it a more gospel-centered perspective. Here's what I mean. We actually use this teaching technique as well, and it's, it's, it's thousands of years old. Let me give you an example. There was a recent movie that used this technique called Inside Out. I don't know if you've seen this movie or not. This is a Pixar movie. And can I just say that movies are the stories of our culture. If you want to have a way to have a conversation with people, have something in common, you need to see movies. 
because that's what people are seeing, and you can use movies as a way to connect them to something bigger, to have a conversation. Here in Inside Out, if you don't know what's going on, what they do is they zoom in inside of a little girl's head, and they personify her principal emotions, and they show these principal emotions driving the girl, so to speak. So you've got anger, fear, sadness, disgust, and joy. I just love how they've personified all those. And each one of those is in control at a different moment. And what James is doing here is he's doing exactly what Inside Out did. And what the ancient Roman culture did to kind of teach them about some different things. Is they said, look, the main way you have rightness as a person, the, the way you just kind of fit with life, the way you have a good life, is that you have to balance your inner person. You have to balance your inner person between not the emotions, that's, that's our viewpoint. Their viewpoint, their three little dudes inside of your head would be your rationality, your will, and your desires. And so they would say having a good life means balancing those three things inside of you. It was a common teaching technique. You can actually read this in ancient sources that they would personify those as different versions of you inside of you. Just like the people from Inside Out did, for sadness and fear, etc. And so they said, if you can balance those little guys out, rationality, will, desire, you will have peace inside of you. There will be a rightness about you. And so what James does is he grabs that common teaching about balance. He grabs that word for desire there in verse 14. is one of their big guys. He grabs desire and says, actually, the problem is not balancing inside of you. The problem is there's something wrong inside of you. He says, look, that desire, you don't just have to balance it, but we have a fallen heart. And so what desire does is actually it baits us, it lures us. And then instead of personifying rationality and will, what does he do? He says, so desire as a person, what? Gives birth to another person who is what? Sin. And what does sin do? Sin gives birth to death. And so James says, no, it's not it's not desire, rationality, and will. What's inside of you is desire, sin, and death. And you don't balance that. You fix that. In other words, he says, look, the ch- what you need is not balance. You need change. You need to be made new. We are the problem. And then he uses this great example. I want, I want to go a different direction than he does, but it's, it's the same thing. I want you to think about the idea of beauty. Why can't we look at the beauty of a fine sports car without coveting? Why can't we look at the beauty of a really well-functioning marriage that someone has or their family without being envious? Why can't we look at the beauty of an attractive woman without lusting after her? See, the fault is not in the beautiful The fault is our bent desire. The fault is not with the creator of beauty who then shows us beauty. No, those things reflect his beauty. The fault is our desire giving birth to sin and death is what James says. And this has real world implications. I mean, as certain areas of our country become more and more multicultural, there is a push to actually have local ordinances put pressure on women to wear headscarves in public, to be culturally sensitive to other cultures. Even in some places, like you can look this up in Michigan, to have veils required 
in public. See, and the principles right here in James is why we don't do veils in Christianity. Yes, we believe in modesty. Absolutely, of course. But we don't force women to be veiled because the problem's not the female form, it's the human heart. See, James is talking here to the church, trying to remind them about, don't let your culture tell you so much about how your life works that you forget the Scriptures tell you how life actually works. He's not talking to unbelievers here. He's trying to correct a church that's gone off the rails because of trials and tribulations. This is for Christians. Isn't it great to know that the gospel comes to people who are messed up like this, who are lured and enticed by desires? Isn't it great to know that the gospel comes to us in spite of us and so that by His grace we then have the gospel in us we see next? See, James wants you to understand you've got to be focused on the gospel during trials because trials are hard. You might even say, I don't know, trials are trying oddly enough, right? So don't fool yourself. They're hard. That's what he says here. Don't fool yourself. Don't be led astray from God during trials. Don't be seduced by your desires. Don't be fooled into seeing trials as proof that you're not in God's will or something. No, they are a gift from God. They're a good gift from God, he says in verse 17. Here's how we put it for the boys and girls. Boys and girls, let's look at your verse 17 and make sure we get this. Here's what James is saying. He says, God, who is unchangeably good, gives us good things. You see, boys and girls, God gives us good things because he's good, is what James says. Even if it's a hard thing that makes you sad, it's a good thing. God is doing a good work in your life through it. Would you like to know a secret, boys and girls? Okay, good. Ready? You ready, Sophia? Mom and dad look back on some sad things in their life, and they're glad those things happened. It made them better people, even though it made them sad, because it was a good thing that God used. That's what James says. James says trials are a gift. But everything that is a good and perfect gift can be turned by our sin nature into a temptation. But he says that's why in verse 17 we rest in the Father of lights with whom there is no variation. For a culture that was obsessed with looking at the stars and trying to understand the movement of the planets and everything, and it was always constantly changing, and they didn't really have any stability, James says, forget about all those changing lights that are sometimes in shadow, sometimes not, and rest your faith in the unchangeable creator of those lights. See, their culture, just like ours, taught us that we are changeable. We live in a changeable world. There's no stability. And so what we have to do is you have to find stability. They said do it through balancing, remember, rationality, will, and desires. Our culture does it. Say what? Well, you need to balance out your interior life with your exterior life. If you feel something is wrong, then it is wrong. And if you feel something is right, then it is right. It doesn't matter whether it takes the changing of the law or the changing of your body through surgery. If you feel this way, then you should express yourself this way. And you'll have peace. So whether it's same-sex attraction or whether it's gender denial or whether it's just, you know, the old-fashioned kind of immorality, it's all about balancing internal desires and thoughts with your external actions, being authentic, making this who we are. 
See, James comes along and he, and he gives this radical challenge to those prevailing ideas. He says, don't look inside yourself. Look to the stable, unchanging Creator for truth. And in Him you find rightness. Don't look inside. Try to balance. Look outside and submit and worship. Maybe your trials are too much at this point. Maybe you're sitting there going, Pastor Sean, I believe God's Word, but you don't understand. It's been years, and this relationship still hurts. It's been years, and this situation will not get fixed. Maybe you just can't see these trials as a gift. So James says, okay, well, maybe that's not good enough for you. Then let's look to salvation itself then for encouragement. Look with me at verse 18, what he says of this. How encouraging is this? Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We are Christians by the will of God. Not by our changing wills. We are Christians by the will of God. Whereas James says, our desires brought forth sin and death. God's desires brought us life in Christ. See, this is extremely amazing here. James is a real pastor writing to real people dealing with real issues. And so he writes in their real language and their vocabulary. And so really, we're going to have to enter briefly into the world of James' readers to understand how amazing verse 18 is. So what I'll do is I want to show you real quick three Greek words that they heard all over the place in their culture that we don't hear that much in our culture. Okay? This will be quick, I promise, and this will be worth it. You have logos, cosmos, and chaos. You probably recognize some of those words, those root words. The ancient Roman people, just like you know at the back of your mind, the earth is round. You just know that. They knew that behind the physical universe was some sort of spiritual organizing idea, and they called it the Logos. We get our ideas of logistics, of logic from this word. Think about what, what, what are those things? Logistics, organizing something to make it work. Logic, understanding how something works. They knew this is how reality works. There's what you see, and then behind it is the Logos. And then they had cosmos. We know that word, the cosmos, right? The universe. Think about what words we get from that, though. We get cosmetics. We get cosmetology. Because why? The organized universe is beautiful. And so something reflecting that beauty is cosmetics. Learning how to do that is cosmetology. So it's the idea of not just the universe, it's a beautiful universe. And its opposite would then be chaos. Complete randomness, can't sustain life, it's not beautiful. So these three concepts, logos, cosmos, and chaos, here's the deal. The reason we don't live in a chaos, but instead because of a cosmos, is because of the logos. It makes the difference. You take out logos, and the cosmos becomes chaos. Again, I know, this is thick. This is, like, what's he talking about? But the concept of logos was understood just like if I say to you, I preach from an iPad. And you know how I get these things to my iPad? I do it through the cloud. Now, when I say that, you don't immediately think, oh, okay, what that means is that there are 
thousands upon thousands of huge servers in hundreds of giant warehouses all across the planet connected by a big fat wire. And so he uploads it to one, it zips across those and downloads and his data actually physically lives there. Right? You don't think that, do you? You probably maybe didn't even know that. But when I say the cloud, you get it. And when James would use the word logos, they got that. It was just part of their culture. They knew that. And so, back at looking at verse 18, when James said, says, God birthed us by the word of truth, he says literally, God birthed us by the logos of truth. It was a really big deal. They got it. He says, God has birthed them as a new people through the fundamental truth of reality. So they could then be the first specimens of his new creation. God is doing something completely brand new, so he grabs this actual reality, the Logos, brings them to life through that Logos, so they can then be the first fruits, the first specimens. Look, look what I did, everybody. Check out the Christians. This is what I'm doing in the world. Still don't get it? Okay, let's try it this way. God is changing the world with the gospel, is what James says. The radically transformed lives of Christians are the foretaste, the appetizer of that great change that's coming. The chaos of sin and death is being changed into a cosmos of grace by his logos of truth. That's the gospel. That's what they read in verse 18. They see God's taking the chaos of sin and death, changing it into a cosmos of grace by the logos of truth. How huge is that? I mean, one of our problems is I think we should have a simple understanding of the gospel. But the gospel's not simple, is it? I mean, we, we, we love our kids. We have VBS. We teach our kids. Right, boys and girls, you know the song, right? Jesus loves me, this I know. Right, right. boys and girls, you know that song, right? Okay, adults, do you know that song? It's a great song, but the problem is it's, it's kind of inaccurate in some ways, and it's very individualistic, but it's also very simplistic, and a lot of times we don't move past that simplistic gospel, do we, to see how huge and how big it is. Maybe we should teach a new VBS song. Maybe we should do something like, I don't know, God is changing everything. A new world through Christ he brings. He is making all things new. I'm the proof and so are you. Why not? That's what James says. See, James says that God is showing the world a whole new way to be human. That's a big deal, isn't it? When is the last time we thought about our Christianity in that kind of significant terms? The gospel is world-changing and we are actually the first fruits of that transformation. That's incredible. And then I love how, as a real pastor, as soon as he has them up here in the awe of what God is doing in the gospel, he immediately comes and convicts them of how they fall short of that. James immediately goes to the area where most Christians fail in verse 19 and 20. He reminds us that very often we say stupid things and we lose our temper way too easily. And every one of you in the room can go, that, yep, that's me. Right? 
I mean, we can become so indignant and ticked off about such trivial things, right? I mean, like, I'll give you one of mine, and I cannot tell you how good it feels to say this publicly. Okay, you ready? The speed limit on Riverbank is 55, people. It is not 40. It is not 30. It is not 25. It is the longest road ever if you get behind someone who's doing that, right? Oh. And Christians are being murdered by the thousands in Syria. Meh. But speed up. That's just dumb. And James says, don't do that. How pathetic. Or how about this? Look at verse 20. How about this? The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Think about the comments we make on Facebook when someone posts something kind of anti-Christian, maybe anti-conservative. Does our anger and sarcasm ever actually work? Has anybody ever had someone send them a private message? You know what? Your sarcastic comment totally helped me see the light. I have now repented and believed the gospel. Thank you. (laughs) Right? Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. See, James reminds us that we are supposed to be different. Not in the, well, good Christians don't act that way. No, not that. This is a substantial difference where we are the first fruits, the deposit the down payment, the proof of the new creation he's bringing. The gospel has changed us and our radically transformed lives caused people to go, what do you have? This is how 12 ordinary guys completely undid and changed the pagan Roman culture in like 300 years. I mean, you realize they, the, the, the apostles were looked at like they had three heads when they talked about monotheism. Only those weird Jewish people who kept blowing things up, the ISIS of their day, basically. The Romans looked at Palestine like we think of ISIS. Only those fundamentalists believe in one God. One God? But look at all these temples we have. What a weirdo. One God. And into that culture, because of their transformed lives. Have you seen those Christians? They, they go out to the city dump and they pick up the babies we leave that we don't want. What is wrong with them? Have you seen them go down to the dirtiest slums and they give those people bread? What is wrong with them? Why do they do that? Are they trying to stage some sort of coup? We need to watch them. We need to control these Christians because they're going to get more popular than the government. We need to stop them. Does our culture look at our radically transformed lives and say there is something really weird about those people? Because that's what it means to be the first fruits of a new creation. It's not our anger. It's not our temper tantrums that the world needs from us. Instead, the world should see the gospel in us. The world-altering, person-changing, connection to reality. That's the biblical gospel. That's what God has birthed into us so the unbelieving world can then see the gospel through us. That's how James finishes here. That's a tall order for us to take this gospel to the world. And James is not talking specifically about evangelism here. He's talking about actually being made into a new person and then proving it. Look with me at verse 21, what he says. He says, again, to Christians, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word 
which is able to save your souls. Or another way we could put it is he could say, look, having cast off all that junk, in humility, pick up the logos God has put in you. And again, when we read the word, word, W-O-R-D, that is meaningless Christianese at this point in America. That's not what he's saying. This is the word, he's saying the, the implanted logos, this background beauty of reality, God has put that in you. That is the gospel. The gospel puts that logos into us. And since that is in us, James gives us this amazing charge to live by. But again, we miss it because it's framed in the, in the language of their culture. In the ancient world, those who could create art, those who could create literature, those who could tell stories, they were considered to somehow be stepping into the divine, to somehow connecting to actual reality and bringing a piece of it down to us. That's why Greek mythology or Homer's epic or the stuff of Roman culture, those things were not just good campfire stories. That was like the truth that their cultures were based on. If you could create something, writing itself was considered a connection to the, to, to the divine. And so the people who could create these things in their culture were called poets. Poetes, poets. By the time of the New Testament, that word had changed from meaning only a poet to being an author to being a creator, or to being a doer. So James says here, a doer of the word is actually a poet of the logos. Now for some of you, you're just like, whatever, dude. For some of you, that's like, whoa, right? Maybe, okay, if, you're, if you're kind of a literary kind of geeky guy like me, that is like red raw meat cool stuff right there. I geeked out of my office. I'm almost lost. I'm like, that's amazing. We're poets of the Logos. We embody God's reality. We are tangible connections to the reality that Jesus Christ has brought. We are the connections other people have to the world that should be. That's what it means to be a poet of the Logos, a doer of the Word. We are those who, dis- who, who disseminate godliness, truth, to a world that needs it so badly. Isn't that an amazing thought? To be a doer of the word is a poet, a creator, an author of the logos, the background reality of all things. And then he ends it with that very last phrase, if you do that, you will be blessed in your doing. It's actually, again, if you're a literary kind of person, how cool is this? You will be blessed in your poetry. I know some of you are like, can we throw a football now? Okay, but... I get that, man. That's so cool. That's amazing. Now, again, for some of you, this has been extremely frou-frou in your total loss, so let me bring it down, okay? If you're a Christian, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, and yet you find yourself unfulfilled, petty, angry, kind of just overwhelmed even though you are a Christian, You are a hearer who forgets. This is the word used for the auditor of a class. You Sure, you show up, but you don't have any skin in the game. You don't actually have to take any tests, so you don't really do the reading or do any assignment. You just show up and do the easy parts. You're a hearer who forgets. 
you're not living in God's blessing. You are certainly not being a poet of the Logos, a tangible representation of the gospel. That's not you. You need to repent and become a poet, a doer of the word. Someone who sees themselves as embodying God's truth to the world. Sent to change that world with that truth. I mean, talk about having purpose in your life. Talk about having value to what you do. What do you do? I am a doer of the word, and God has put me in the field of education to change the world. I am a poet of the Logos, and God has put me into the field of dentistry. I'm a poet of the Logos, and I am in upper management, and I am changing the world through this. Wow. That's what it means to be a poet of the Logos, a doer of the word. We are unfulfilled because our gospel is so small. It's Jesus loves me, this I know, instead of God is changing everything. See, but God's gospel is life-changing, person-transforming, and town-renewing. And so be a doer by taking this incredible gospel to lives that need changed, people who need transformed, and a town that needs to be renewed. And in so doing, you will not only change your world with the gospel, you will find the blessing your life lacks in your doing. You will have a life, how cool is this, that God looks at and says, that's poetry. And for those of you here who aren't Christians, James is writing primarily to Christians. I admit that. He's trying to help them live out the reality of this robust gospel that God has put into us. And I admit that it may seem it doesn't have a lot to do with you, but I would ask you to think about these incredible claims that God makes about the significance of the gospel. You have opinions about Christianity and the gospel. You may or may not think it's a big deal. My guess is you've never thought about Christianity in terms this universal, this earth-shattering, because most Christians haven't either. I would encourage you to think about what it really means that the Logos is the background reality of everything. That we have been birthed through that Logos to be the new creations, and so we are then poets of that Logos. And that I would encourage you to think about what it means that a later author, about 40 years after the book of, of, of James, would write in the very beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos became flesh, Jesus Christ. So you see, Christianity teaches that that unknowable, weird order, beauty to the universe called the Logos is actually a person with whom you can have relationship. That's the gospel. That's why James calls this passage a perfect law of liberty because when you see that, oh my goodness, through Jesus Christ, the chaos of sin and death in my life and my world can become a cosmos of grace, that's a big deal. Freedom and fulfillment comes, James ends by saying, when your life sinks with what God is doing, you find blessing. Because God is making all things new through the gospel in his people, the church. Maybe you've never thought about the gospel in those terms. I want to encourage you to think about these serious claims and realize that that is who Jesus is and he is worthy of your worship. And I would invite you to place your faith and trust in Him as the absolute fundamental reality of all things. Ask Him to show you more of these things, and He will. And for those of you who are Christians, this is Jesus. 
This is the gospel that the fundamental reality has become a person who can then make you his sister and brother. Let's pray together. Now, Father God, we, we confess that our gospel is so small. We thank you that the gospel is simple, but it's not simplistic. And so often our understanding of your gospel is quite simplistic. Lord, would you forgive us for that? Would you help us, Lord, to see that you are making all things new through the power of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ? That because the Logos has come into the world and then been raised out of the world, he has raised the world up to new purpose. Lord, would you help us to take our faith seriously? Would you help us, Lord, not to fall under a despondent despair of it's too hard? Instead, would you help us once again to believe your gospel, that you have made us new creatures in Christ, that you have given us all things through Jesus Christ, that you want us to be these people, and so you've empowered us that we are the first fruits because it was your will, not ours. And so, Lord, would you help us to be those first fruits? Would you help us to be poets? of your truth that we might change the world because you are changing the world through the gospel. Give us a bigger view of what you're doing, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.